You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Fort Apache The Bronx, released February 6th, 1981. It was written by Haywood Gould and, quote-unquote, suggested by the experiences of Thomas Mulhern and Pete Tessitore, directed by Daniel Petrie and released by 20th Century Fox. So does suggested by the experiences of just mean that they were like consultants on the Basically, film? They didn't write yeah. this down. Correct. They don't have story <laughs> credits and they're, okay. they do have technical like consultant credits. Oh, okay. Yeah, like they were just like a couple of guys who were like, hey, you know what would be a cool story? <laughs> no. No, <laughs> that's how been. you get a story by credit. Um, but uh, these I, guys were actual cops. Oh, okay. That makes sense. The day before Fort Apache the Bronx came out, Tom Hiddleston was born. Mm. Loki? Mm. Yeah. Director Arthur Hiller took the script to several studios before eventually giving up on the project. Steve McQueen and Nick Nolte were attached at different times during the pre-production phase, and Sidney Pollack was offered $10 million to direct it. You know, it's funny because... I absolutely had like Hunter flashbacks during this movie. Yeah, so I did too, Steve, actually. When you said Steve McQueen, I was like, God, this movie just has the same kind of weird pacing as that movie. Yeah, it yeah. did. It really did. Paul Newman was later cast for a fee of $3 million against 15% of gross receipts. It's a pretty hefty paycheck. Shame it didn't make more money. Protests plagued the production, stemming from the film's negative portrayal of African and Puerto Rican Americans. As I suspected watching it, John Travolta was the first choice to play Corelli. That but makes sense. he was looking for a two-month break between rapping on Urban Cowboy and starting his next film, and that was not available here. Upon its release, police captain Tom Walker filed an $18 million lawsuit against writer Haywood Gould and the film's producers for using details from a manuscript he had written on the 41st Precinct, which was later published as the novel Fort Apache in 1976. So this is before the film was released. But the case was dismissed when the judge declared the similarities insignificant. The stories were not in common other than the fact that they took place in the 41st Precinct, which was publicly known as Fort Apache. Yeah, well, but also, I mean, like, I, after having watched this film, I don't feel like anything in it was that unique, even to necessarily the Bronx. That was basically the judge's point as well. Veteran TV writer and producer Steve Bochco credits this film with inspiring his series, Hill Street Blues, which debuted the same year. The screenplay was inspired by the experiences of real-life former NYPD detectives Thomas Mulhern and Pete Tessitore, Mulhern's girlfriend, the real-life inspiration for Isabella, the nurse character, whose name I didn't know until I found this trivia point. Actually... <laughs> She actually auditioned to play the character based on her, but oh. she was not accepted because she was she worked actively as a nurse. Yeah. She was not an actress. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I have to go. Sorry, I have to go back to a thought. Then, yep. This guy tried to sue the production 
even though because it was based on his manuscript even though this movie was suggested by two different guys yeah i mean there's more than one person who was uh aware of fort apache and its reputation in the bronx yeah i would i would have thrown that case out too yeah <laughs> I, I think his complaint was that he said that haywood gould had had access to and probable cause to borrow from his manuscript for his novel before it was released and so but the he novel said was that, released in 76 right and the movie didn't come out until 80 or 81 so he was saying that i you know he saw my manuscript and then he decided to make this movie and but that they decided that was not the case that what he used in the story did not actually come from the manuscript yeah uh, makes sense pam greer also auditioned for the role of the nurse character but was eventually cast as the murderous hooker instead at the beginning we get some titles uh that i think were added to appease the protesters yeah it says the picture you are about to see is a portrayal of the lives of two policemen working out of a precinct in the south bronx new york because the story involves police work it does not deal with the law-abiding members of the community nor does it dramatize the efforts of the individuals and groups who are struggling to turn the bronx around i don't get this that second sentence does not make sense to me because it seems like a backhanded way of saying like well you know this stuff actually happens you know yeah like- i think that's basically the point <laughs> the, the message is supposed to be hey like this isn't this isn't everybody in the neighborhood but cops only ever encounter bad people so that's why all the people in this movie will seem bad and well, cops never encounter good people so no one will seem good well and the like jesse is saying the second statement is just like uh and we don't mean to belittle the people who are trying to fix this shitty place yeah we yeah sh- sorry i just it just super bothers me like grammatically yeah <laughs> like i feel like there's a way to have put that in which it wasn't the second sentence was also not insulting the people that you were trying to appease with the first started, sentence <laughs> they probably started with a very rude statement and then they took a thesaurus to it for about 45 <laughs> minutes so they were like hey this is these are cops they deal with bad guys every day they don't deal with good guys also this isn't a movie about good guys and so the second half of it is basically this isn't a movie about good guys and then they're like see they're bad cops too so you know yeah look at that (laughs) yeah actually i was surprised about that part but we'll get there we start with a soundtrack of drums and flutes over wide shots of the city in a bluish hue down at the street level we see a woman approach a police car this is pam greer playing a character who is credited as charlotte but i don't think has a name in the movie uh she does i think she's Uh, named after a neighborhood well the the pimp calls her charlotte oh he does okay yeah she appears intoxicated and offers her body to the police when they remind her that they are on the clock she said i'm on my job too just like you she fishes something out of her purse to show how busy she is but it's a gun and she fires it repeatedly into the car killing both men she stumbles away from the crime scene and a crowd of men approach the car to see what she did and then they pick the car clean of weapons and valuables as we cut to a locker room at the local precinct named fort apache this is the 41st precinct in the bronx the cops are discussing the shooting victims were both rookies murphy played by paul newman trades barbs with a much younger officer corelli played by ken wall but they seem to get along 
Captain Dugan hassles a couple of officers about emptying his office for his retirement in a couple days. He mentions that his replacement is a hard ass who's going to drive everybody here crazy. At the morning briefing, everyone is brought up to speed on the shooting of the officers. They have to push back against the neighborhood hard to make it known that cops aren't fair game. They also announce a jar for collecting donations toward a gift for the captain. And when we see this jar, it's got like three bucks and a Coke can in it. They're not, yeah, so they're not taking it very Coke seriously. Can. Also, like uh, no no take up for collection for these guys' families or something? No, no, no. Just money for the guy who's retiring with a whole retirement package. We don't, we don't need to provide for the rookies' families. Murph and Corelli are partners. Another uh, set of partners that get named in this scene are the... Uh, Mulhern and Tessitori, uh, the cops who the story was adapted from, their story. Mulhern and Tessitori. We cut to a man standing on the edge of a building, shouting his intentions to jump to a crowd forming below. Murph and Corelli arrive and find the jumper's boyfriend in the building. They drag him up to the roof to try and reason with the jumper, Carl. Murph and Corelli crawl toward Carl from either side and catch his legs just as he turns to jump off the building. I can't tell if this actor actually like hits their head on the building, but they swing completely upside down over the edge. I I think it, it's a dummy. Yeah, I was gonna say I I don't know that it's the actor, but w- whatever flips over the edge of that building, person or dummy, it definitely hits their head. Yeah, if it's not a dummy, then or if if it is a dummy, it's a very convincing dummy. Yeah. But uh, I thought it was just a stunt guy that was probably roped up pretty tight, but I can't tell if whatever it is connects with the building on the way down. As they escort Carl out the front door of the building, he is excited to greet his adoring public. For some reason, Carl has been shouting since the rooftop for news anchor Tom Snyder to make an appearance at this suicide (laughs) attempt. (laughs) And he continues shouting Snyder's name as he is loaded into an ambulance. Is Tom Snyder here yet? No, he said to wait for him. Tom! He said to wait for him right here. Tom! Tom Snyder! Tom! At the hospital, they dump Carl in the care of a nurse who Murph does some preliminary flirting with. Back on the street, they see a repeat offender on a street corner and plead with him telepathically not to commit a crime while they're around. He's wearing, like, one of those leather, like, pilot helmets. Yeah, I think they called mm-hmm. it a war- World War One fighter helmet or fighter pilot helmet. Oh, okay. Something like that. But uh, it's like he knows they're there and he grabs a lady's purse and runs right in front of them. And they have no choice but to pursue him here. They pull over to chase him on foot for a bit, but it's no use because he is extremely fast. Another pair of cops find Murph out of breath in the park, having given up the chase. They tell him to just shoot these criminals in the future, and they promise to agree with any justification he can come up with. The new captain, Connolly, played by Ed Asner, parks outside the 41st precinct. He asks for directions to Dugan's office, and Sergeant Pantuzzi points the way. No questions asked. Don't you monitor the people who ask to see the commander, Sergeant? What if I was a lunatic with a gun? Then you wouldn't be a police officer, Captain Connolly. Pantuzzi tells Connolly that he'll retire on the spot before he takes any shit from this new commander. I like that he does this whole bit with, like, not even looking up from, you know, his documents that he's going through. Yeah. Like, he just says it all without even looking at the guy. And I think Dugan is like, all right, fine. I'll leave this one guy alone then. Dugan does a bit of paperwork handoff with Connolly. Connolly starts to tell Dugan all the shit that he's doing wrong, partnering rookies, unmotivated officers. Dugan claims that his men are all the reject transfers from elsewhere in New York. Dugan lays into Connolly for blaming him for all of the precinct's problems, and eventually 
picks up his box of shit to just walk out the door. Yeah. Warning Connolly that this city will bury him no matter how smart he thinks he is. Back in their car, Murph picks on Corelli for reading a book called Dress for Success. Based on their conversation, it seems like this is an actual self-help novel about dressing for the job you want. But it kind of looks like he's just reading a romance novel. Like, it's a really fat <laughs> yeah. paperback. It's like 250 pages. Yeah, it does not look like a self-help book. No. It looks like either, like you said, like a romance or a slasher novel. Yeah, that they just put a new cover on because they needed a book prop. Have we ever showed you Patrick's romance novel? <laughs> yeah. We were at a... Uh, what was that um some, was it in chico some thrift store yeah, yeah we were at a thrift store in chico and i found this book called men at work and it's about like some fighter pilot character and his name is patrick o'reilly spelled exactly like my name and i was like <laughs> i have to buy this now <laughs> so now we have a, a you know one of those sexy romance novels and on the back it says who is that sexy guy <laughs> patrick o'reilly <laughs> 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 pretty wonderful as they drive, they see a pimp slapping a prostitute and pull over to intervene. The prostitute is the Pam Greer character again as Charlotte, and the pimp says that she's on angel dust and she's completely insane. He tries to bribe the cops to get some alone time with his woman, and Murph is so offended that he takes his nightstick to the pimp's fancy car. Corelli tries to break it up before it goes too far, but it really already did. Yeah. <laughs> like, he would get in a lot of trouble for this already. This is how he lost his detective badge, <laughs> stupid stuff like this. You try to grease me again, and I'll turn your head like a goddamn doorknob. Hey, hey, Murph, slow down. Slow down, man. We cut to the sidewalk outside a corner store where an angry homeless man is swinging a knife at a large crowd of shouting people. They're all standing much closer to him than I would in this situation. <laughs> right? Yeah. I never want to see which person gets stabbed more than I want to not be that person. Some of these people have kids with them. What the fuck are you all doing? Is this what people did before smartphones? <laughs> hey, you want to play a round of Among Us? Oh, wait. Phones aren't toys yet. I know. Let's give a hobo a knife. <laughs> well, <laughs> and they can't they can't film it, so they right. have to witness it with their own eyes. Yeah. I, I can't download this later. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's no YouTube to, you know, this is, you got to watch these things live now. When they arrive, Murph makes the bizarre decision to pretend to be crazy also. He flips his hat around backwards and blindly tosses his nightstick in the air while making strange whooping noises. <laughs> <laughs> I actually really love the faces and like hand gestures that he's doing. It's pretty it's pretty fun. Yeah, uh, but I also feel like it is a very risky strategy yeah, here. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh, the crazy knife wielder is transfixed by this performance and I've already decided that this will be the gif that I use when I post this to Twitter because it's such a bizarre clip with the context let alone out of context. I like I kind of assumed when he started doing this that the idea was that his partner would swing around the backside of him you know like while he was distracted to like tackle him. But no. No. It's not a distraction <laughs> it's just a I know this language. The man gives Murph the knife, and all the idiot onlookers applaud. Back at the precinct, Connolly is complaining about all the Native American decorations that litter the walls of quote-unquote Fort Apache, which is named that way because they're a precinct in the middle of what they consider like the Wild West. Hostile uh, territory. Yeah, and so they're always under attack like Fort Apache was in the John Wayne movie Fort Apache, or the real Fort Apache, which I assume that movie is based on. Murphy and Corelli follow up at the hospital with the same nurse and murph takes the opportunity to hit on her again 200 cops ask me out every day why should i say yes to you because you say yes to all the others 
Well, I guess that makes you the only cop in the Bronx I say no to. In his office later, Connolly is brought up to speed on a drug operation being run from inside the hospital. There's a man at the hospital that is dealing drugs to people in the stairwells, and they have evidence of it, and they haven't broken up the ring yet. Connolly asks if anybody on the street has provided any info on the cop shooting, and is reminded that in this neighborhood, cops are the enemy and nobody's going to help out. Up here, Captain, cops are like husbands. They're always the last to know. Murph and Corelli respond to a call in a Spanish-speaking home. Inside, they are led to a 14-year-old girl about to give birth. They talk her through the delivery, and the baby is born safely. We cut to a stairwell at the hospital where these pills are being divvied up between buyers. Murph and Corelli bring the new mother and child back to the hospital to hit on the nurse a third time. What, the, the, the mother and child are not hitting on the nurse, just no, to be the, clear. No, the new mother is hitting on the nurse. <laughs> it's a strange turn of events. So they they got to the apartment building because they said it was an ambulance call. Right. I guess I'm assuming that the ambulance would not come. That was my guess. Okay. Or just not in a timely manner, and they know that that is the way of the Bronx. Yeah, but I th- I thought more that it was a situation where we don't send ambulances to this part of the city because um, in the movie Mother Jugs and Speed, when they would send ambulances to uh, parts of the city where there were a lot of drug users, they would hijack the ambulance drivers at gunpoint and steal any medicine that they had in the ambulance. So I thought this was a situation where it's like, oh, no, we'll just send cops. Cops will be fine. But this time when they get to the hospital, the nurse seems impressed by what uh, Murph has accomplished today, and she invites him to drinks. I get asked out by 200 nurses a day. Why should I say yes to you? Because you say yes to all the others? Back at the precinct lockers, the men are getting out of uniform at the end of their shift. Corelli reminds us all that he is engaged to be married, which is nothing if not a death sentence for the character. <laughs> I was sure right. that this guy, was, there's no way he survives this film if he's about to get married. Uh, look, huh? You know what a nice Catholic schoolboy means when he says he's in love? Means he ain't getting no chocha. No chocha for the key. No chocha. Not even a cho. <laughs> you scruffy Irish potato eater. What do you know about style, huh? <laughs> As she leaves the hospital that night, Murph pulls up to pick up the nurse on their date. He takes her to a shit kicker bar where two of his fellow cops are hanging out. It seems to be a f- the frequent spot for, for yeah. the cops in the area. Yeah, it's definitely the cop bar. Uh, we see Corelli standing in an alley throwing an empty soda can at a window to get his fiance's attention. I don't know if he's just calling her his fiance and it's his girlfriend. It doesn't seem like they're legitimately engaged, but maybe they are. I They never really clear it up. I also am not totally sure how old she is. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, he showed up after midnight with a pizza and just expected to be welcomed in unannounced. She's very hesitant because not only are her parents home, but they're like asleep in the next room over. Back at the bar, Murph and the nurse are getting to know each other. Murphy is divorced with three daughters. The nurse is less interested in sharing. Well, I don't like talking about myself either. So let's talk about two other people. Okay. They decide to describe each other instead of themselves. The prize for being correct is more drinks. He guesses that she's the oldest of many siblings from a poor family who got a scholarship to a nursing school but can't find a job anywhere but this crappy neighborhood. She guesses that he is a third-generation cop with all cop friends and family. Turns out they're both right, but she offers to get the next round. Back at Teresa's place, Teresa is Corelli's fiance, they're eating pizza and watching television, but it turns out she's not actually eating any of the pizza. It's just Corelli's eating it by himself because she doesn't want to get fat. 
He keeps pressuring her to have sex in the living room, despite her parents being home, and she insists that her dad will wake up any second. Teresa tells Corelli that she's every bit as eager as he is, but she wants to wait for marriage, and Corelli says he might not have that long, and gives her a whole bullshit story about five guys opening fire on them today. I'm guessing he's righter than he thinks. All of these predictions I made come to ruin. Back on Murph's date, the nurse asks why he isn't a commissioner already after 18 years on the job, and he tells her he was a detective for a while, but it didn't last very long. Turns out Murph arrested a guy whose lawyer kept getting him out, so Murph got pissed off and threw the guy's car keys in the sewer, and then he ate his driver's license and registration. <laughs> uh, but the guy had legit connections in the force, and Murph lost his badge as a result of it. He tries to drop the nurse off at her place, and she asks to come back to his. She makes fun of what a mess it is there, and here's where I realized that she spent the entire date in her uniform from the hospital. She didn't even get to change. Yeah. Uh, but she takes it off here. We cut back to the other date, where it seems like Corelli has successfully guilted his quote-unquote fiancé into sex for probably her first time, and she asks what he thought of it, but he's being a real asshole about it, pretending that she's asking how the pizza was and not the sex. Well, and like not even actively engaging in this conversation right. like closing his eyes with his back to her and like yeah. sleeping yeah he's a dick back in murph's apartment he climbs out of bed when the nurse falls asleep and he notices to his dismay that she has a clear vampire bite on her leg and that come sun up she will likely disappear to a powdery red <laughs> dust what? What? no it's um looks like she's shooting up she's got track marks yeah <laughs> We cut out to a street corner where an out-of-towner is racing to change a tire, terrified of the neighborhood. Pam Greer, as Charlotte propositions the man, he asks for the rate, but she's offering a free trial. <laughs> this almost never happens. <laughs> what is that one time? I, I just need your credit card in advance in case you decide to keep it. But I can cancel any time, right? <laughs> but you got to remember, though, set a timer. They move into an abandoned building where she sits him down on a couch, and then she moves to kiss his neck when she reveals to the camera that she's holding a razor blade between her teeth, which she uses to quickly slit the man's throat. I was not expecting this because she seemed like she was just a crazy person who would just do like dumb, violent things like shooting. And this seems very like premeditated uh, for mm -hmm. this character. Much more personal. Yeah. In Corelli's family kitchen in the morning, it sounds like his little brother is basically Stan the Con from Falling in Love Again. He works with bookies keeping numbers. And his father is making wine in the house for Christmas. Like it's a Christmas gift of wine. Um, Christmas wine. Yeah, Corelli is joking that his his brother's a bookie and his dad is a bootlegger. But I didn't get the impression that what his dad was doing was actually illegal. Maybe it is. I don't know. No, no. But who would want freshly made wine? Is don't you, don't It's vintage. To... It's it's just two weeks old. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the it's like... first family. Donkey blood um, and cow urine, August. Well, I was going to say, uh, uh, reference the jerk. Bring us some fresh wine. The freshest you've got this year's. No more of this old stuff. The new captain is briefed on the South Bronx People's Party, a local political group with a storefront from which they preach armed revolt to the locals. Captain Connolly wants the leader brought in for questioning, even though there's no crime per se having been committed. For the next morning's briefing, Connolly steps in to speak to the men. He points out that they have made zero progress in the investigation of the cop killers. He endorses extraordinary measures in pursuit of information, and in the middle of his speech, Danny Aiello 
is falling asleep and drops his nightstick to the floor, drawing everyone's attention. Pick it up. Connolly presses the men to make more arrests, and everybody they bring in is going to get grilled by the detectives on this open investigation. Anybody who brings in a suspect with useful information gets a week of vacation time. It's kind of like the scene in Borderline when Bronson is lecturing all of his agents about protecting their own and how they're going to work overtime to get these guys. Murph tells the captain that arresting everybody won't do any good, and Connolly shames him for not wanting to police his own neighborhood. Murph and Corelli head out in plain clothes for the day in an ugly Dodge van. They make a stop at an apartment of a regular informant, and once they kick the door in, Corelli is immediately flying off the handle, and Murph is trying to hold him back. It's the age-old good cop, bad cop scene. What's the matter with you? Oh, he's just a little upset about those cop killings. The informant claims that the man across the hall has been dealing guns for weeks. The guy is suddenly worried about narking on his neighbor, and Murph invites the guy to arrest himself by getting into the van outside. Because the apartment across the hall is so quiet, Murph doesn't want to bust in the door, so instead, they start a garbage fire in the hallway and just start screaming fire out in the hallway. I feel like this should affect more apartments than it does, but it seems to just scare this one guy out of his place. Yeah, but I like that Corelli like does like a a feminine scream of oh, yeah. terror, and and he's saying "fuego, fuego" because he's trying to make sure in case this person doesn't speak English, they won't know what someone shouting fire in the hallway means. A couple topless women come running out of the apartment first, and then the gun runner. We cut right from this arrest to Murph and Corelli busting a cockfight ring. Do you recall our last cockfight scene? Uh, when time ran out. Uh, Heaven's Gate. Yep. Heaven's Gate. Oh. When time ran out, it's way further back. <laughs> that's another one. <laughs> well, it's going to bring back the Paul Newman connection. Oh, that's true. Uh, we cut right to them arresting a bunch of prostitutes and Johns. Unfortunately for them, Charlotte sneaks away from the prostitute pack to evade arrest here. They are running out of room in the van, so they commandeer a full city bus, <laughs> which reminds me of a joke from Clone High. Well, that's two, which is all we could fit in the squad car. The rest of you are free to go. For some reason, they kick the bus driver out, though, and Corelli gets to drive the bus. It's like, do you have a Class B driver's license? <laughs> I don't think you're allowed well, to do I, this. I assume, did they actually kick him out, or was the bus driver just on the bus? <laughs> Maybe he was on the bus, but why wouldn't he be driving it? Isn't he the one with a license to drive well, a bus? True. Is, it, is A just a regular license? Class or? C is a regular license. Class that's C what I have. Okay. It's Class C for car, Class B for bus. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And, and class A for anything else. Airplane. <laughs> airplane. Okay. It's all just a driver's license. People don't realize this. We drive airplanes. Sure, why not? It looks like the rest of the cops have taken a more direct approach, just filling the van with unwarranted arrests from the South Bronx People's Party office. The whole neighborhood watches these arrests, and they look very disappointed in the police force. In response to this sudden police brutality, an angry mob forms. Connolly is informed of the approaching mob and orders all cops back to the precinct, as well as backup from other boroughs. The precinct is completely swarmed with arrests, and the detectives aren't getting anything out of them. Outside, the mob is arriving at the precinct, and even their dogs are angry. <laughs> There's a bunch of just random street dogs that are barking in the crowd. So it was at this point that I was genuinely starting to wonder what this movie was about. Yeah, it's taken its time, huh? Yeah. Is it about catching the cop killer is it about the unrest in the bronx is it going to be like assault on precinct 13 and this mob and they have to defend themselves from this mob 
what what is going to be the plot of this movie? I think these are all great questions that someone should have asked when they were in the outlining stage. <laughs> uh, because I don't think they decide what it's about. And I think that most of those storylines are completely undeveloped in favor of a bunch of character building scenes of Paul Newman being silly with criminals, which is exactly what happened in uh, The Hunter, which is just Steve McQueen being silly with criminals and they like him mm-hmm. even though he's the one arresting them. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it turns out that everyone they arrested from the South Bronx People's Party were together at a nuclear teach-in with 500 witnesses the day of the attack on the rookie police officers. The crowd outside starts chanting, Let the Brothers Go. And Captain Connolly is very pissed off to find Murph chanting along with them from inside the precinct. Let the Brothers Go! Let the Brothers Go! Connolly heads outside to face off with the protesters and gives them five minutes to disperse with no legal recourse or leverage at all. He tells the desk sergeant to release tear gas into the crowd when their time is up, and suddenly sharpshooters are appearing on the roof of the precinct building. Eventually, they release the gas and start clubbing protesters in the fog. Murph is disgusted by this decision and lets Connolly know. Connolly orders Murph and Corelli to bring in the guy who he has decided is in charge of this mob. When they get to the desk, the suspect and Captain Connolly are both wiping their eyes from the tear gas, and the man they've collected tries to pick a fight with Connolly, but Murph warns him against it and offers to have him back on the street in an hour if he'll cooperate. We get a quick montage of Murph and the nurse's relationship over time that starts with him introducing her to his daughters. Yeah, see, this is totally wrong. For for what just happened, they, we just had this huge set of arrests yeah. about this cop-killing case... Uh, there was a riot. They arrested the ringleader of a riot who said they, they were going to continue the revolution once he gets back out. Cut to... Oh, these are my daughters. Montage. Yeah, back to the yeah. relationship. I was like, I was like, oh, I guess everything is okay now. But then immediately after this montage, it goes to shit again. Yeah. Uh, we cut to another riot in progress where now explosives are audible. And several apartment buildings are fully engulfed in flames. This is our second Danny Aiello movie where someone is throwing homemade bombs off of a roof in a New York City neighborhood. <laughs> Can you recall <laughs> the other one? What is the uh, name of that movie? Jan Michael Vincent. Despicable Me, that's it. <laughs> No, it's Jan Michael Vincent. It's Defiance. Defiance. Hey, Defiance. I, was, I was on the right track. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to start doing this more often where I just ask you guys, do you remember the last time this happened? Murph and Corelli are ordered to the rooftop to stop the people throwing things down. One of them drops a full porcelain toilet over the side of the building and narrowly misses protesters below. It's much closer than the exploding televisions from Times Square, and it seems unintentionally close to the extras from this scene. Mm-hmm. Like dangerously close. Murph and Corelli arrest the guys on the roof of the tallest building and watch as their fellow officers apprehend people on all the shorter rooftops. Corelli notices a couple apparently on a date watching the riots below when two police officers break them up and Danny Aiello's cop character is just punching the crap out of the guy for no reason. Murph and Corelli are struggling to get his attention from their rooftop, but he can't hear them, and in his anger, he lifts the guy up and throws him off the side of this 8 to 10 story building to his death. He just completely lifts him. Yeah. Like, over his head and tosses him. And I believe that Danny Aiello could do this, too. I mean, I don't mean strength-wise. I mean morally. No, No, I think uh, the other way around. Um, I think he's strong enough to do this, but he's also strong enough not to do it. 
Murph and Corelli both seem nauseous at the sight of this. Did you see that? I didn't see nothing. Even Aiello's partner grips his chest uncomfortable as they look over at the girl who saw this whole thing happen. Murph. No, I don't think that they saw the girl. Oh, I thought they did see the girl and that she was panicking because they saw her. Maybe not. I don't think it was clear. Because later he'll say, Paul Newman will say that they have have the girl who saw you. And he goes, what girl? Because, and, and that gives him away. It gives Paul Newman away because he saw the girl from where he was. And that means he's, well, he could also just be familiar with her testimony. It doesn't necessarily give away that he saw this happen. That's true. Murph and Corelli arrest their men and head back to the precinct without saying anything to Aiello. Corelli is disturbed by the funk that Murphy's in and invites him out drinking. When Murph walks back to his car outside the bar, he finds the same criminal with the uh, pilot helmet thing on. I don't know what you call it. What did we call it before? Uh, World War One. Yeah. It doesn't seem like, I I feel like helmet is the wrong word. I guess it is. Hat. It's a lovely hat. It's just, it's just a cloth thing that you wear inside the helmet. Yeah. Back in that, in those days, a leather leather helmets were the thing yeah like, it's it's not i just super don't want practical. people to think that it's fucking top gun trying to take shit out of his car <laughs> no, no, no it's it's uh, a leather it's like what bob balaban was wearing in call it a cap catch, catch 22 sure every time he ditched um yeah but yeah he's he's got this this cloth cap sure a pilot's cap that sounds wrong <laughs> i too. think it's leather though fine he's got a leather <laughs> leather helmet thing on and uh, he's digging around in murph's car but when Murph finds him, he, like, lifts his hands like he's not going to do anything because he wants this guy to get away from his car. He doesn't want to cause any more trouble than he has to. And the guy just runs off into the night. All the cops from the day of the riot are invited into Connolly's office the next day to deny having thrown this guy off the roof. Nobody admits to anything, but Connolly asks Murph to stick around after excusing the rest of the crowd. Murph says he didn't do it. And you don't know who did. What are you doing? Are you asking me or are you telling me? Get out of here. I did not know the answer to that question when he asked that. I didn't either. And that's why I th- I think he was asking based on what happens later. No, but no, no. At the I time, agree yeah. now. But at the, when he said that, I was like, I, yeah, I don't know. Like this guy comes in and he seems like he's all in the by the books, but even by the books guys don't rat on other cops. I, I think it's weird that Connolly didn't answer the question there. Yeah. Because I feel like yeah. the, the if Connolly is on the up and up and he doesn't want corrupt cops in the district, he should have said, I'm asking. Yeah, no kidding. Yes. But he doesn't. He just tells him to get out of his office. When he comes out, the men, and specifically the murderer, are very interested what he and Connolly had to say in private, but Murph doesn't want to talk to them. We cut to a flop house where Charlotte is half passed out on drugs and two men are walked past her by, I think, like a madam. Is this woman, like, I don't know. selling her? Yeah, or she seems like she's running some kind of uh, either yeah, illicit business midpoint yeah. for the drugs or I whatever. think she was more of a drug dealer because I think that this, you know, Charlotte was there to get drugs. I don't think she was there oh, maybe to that's sell herself. One of the guys starts hitting on her and she starts doing a very sexy snake dance for him. I'm a snake. Uh, the guy is totally into it and she surprises him by slashing him across the face with a razor blade. Or worse, the same razor blade. Don't share razor blades, kids. What would you share them for? (laughs) Why do kids have razor blades? (laughs) Don't use razor blades, kids. Get them in the Halloween candy. Grow those beards out, kids. Kids with beards are the coolest. They're the coolest kids. 
The guy's friend yanks her away and shakes the razor blade out of her hand. And then the guy with the cut on his face pulls a knife and stabs her in the chest. And she's dead. Yeah. She is, she's like, bleeds out instantly. And uh, yeah. the woman that's here with them freaks out as Charlotte is dying. And the men start rifling through her purse to verify that she's not an undercover cop first, which was their first thought. Well, and, and so now I'm starting to get really frustrated with this movie. I mean, I've already been like like slightly frustrated. But now I was like, well, now this murder is never going to get solved. Right. And it, yes. it gets worse from here. Yes. I was so pissed off because I thought that. I, I, I did think from the beginning that the point of this movie was about finding the cop killers, but it was right. just meandering a lot. But now, there, you know, I was 99% sure at this point there's no resolution to this. Well, the, the thing that bothers me more is that there's a chain of evidence that goes on from here that never comes into play. Yeah. but The gun. Yeah. So they, when they're rifling through her purse to make sure she's not a cop, the guy finds the gun and he takes the gun. So I figured later they're going to find this gun on these guys and assume that they did it. They and that's going to play a part in something. Yeah. But we never nope. mentioned this gun again. I mean, maybe it is what happened, but this movie was already too long and they took all that shit out. But There's other stuff you could have taken out. No kidding. I would. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Luckily for them, where she collapsed on the floor was in the middle of a rug on top of another rug. So they just wrap it around her <laughs> and carry her out of the scene. I, I really wanted there to be like another like horribly grotesque blood stain on that rug. Yeah. It's like, that's why I put the other rug there. Yeah, and then they take that rug and there's a third rug that's pristine. <laughs> no, <laughs> the hardwood floors has got more blood yeah. stains. Thanks for at least keeping it in the stabbing room where we have all of our rugs. <laughs> at a bar, Aiello keeps trying to convince Murphy to drink with him and tell him what's going on until Murph spills the beans that there are witnesses to his crime that could turn him in. Murphy tries to leave, and Aiello chases him down the street to his car. Poor kid wasn't bothering nobody in front of the roof! You shut the fuck up! Oh, you fucking creep, I wish I was man enough to turn you in! Aiello goes in for the attack, and Murph pulls a roadhouse on him, kicks him in the knee sideways before lining up a couple more punches. And uh, Aiello only gets one really shitty slow motion punch that almost looks stop motion animated (laughs) the way they filmed it. They grapple with each other some more until Murph smashes him to the ground with a big piece of wood before hucking it through a window. And then a carload of cops have to break up the fight and they're pissed off because they should be helping the city, not these two cops that are fighting each other. We cut to the guy who stabbed Charlotte to death, tossing her body into the trunk of a car. And the next morning... Corelli finds Murph sitting on a bench in the park. Murph tells Corelli that he's going to roll over on Finley and Morgan, which are the names of Aiello and his partner in this film. He asks if Corelli's going to back him, and he doesn't really respond. Eventually, Murph pushes him to admit that turning in these cops won't change the world, and it won't do the dead kid any favors, so what's the point? He also admits to Murph that he'd consider him a rat if he turned those cops in. And we cut to Murph in his car later, as the nurse walks by with her groceries, she asks what happened to his face. Tried to score with an orangutan. <laughs> That's about your speed. Didn't you date this guy? It seems weird to say yeah. an orangutan is his speed if he's your boyfriend. They chat some more in the park, and Murph admits that he is lonely when she's not around. She tells him that she needs a hot bath, and we cut to her wish coming true in his apartment. He pours some bubble bath to make it fun. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he pours the bubble bath in, and maybe this wasn't the first take or something like that, and the bubble bath like was tinted a little yellowy, but the water looks really 
yellow. That's probably just Bronx yeah. water. It's well, maybe, maybe that's it. You but either way, that stuff, and that's how they make root beer. <laughs> the the water looks gross, and then he added bubbles, and then it looked like gross watery gross bubble pee water. <laughs> well, the reason for a bubble bath is so that you can't see the water. <laughs> that night, he wakes up as she is getting dressed to leave. He urges her to stay, and when she won't, he asks if she's leaving to get high. Judging from her initial reaction, the track marks he saw are actually medicinal and not illicit. Oh, no, she admits right here that she's actually using drugs, but that she's not an addict. She just uses them when she needs them. Oh, so like every other addict. Uh, But she's just insulted at his powers of observation, that that he caught her. That's why she's mad. Not because she's a diabetic and he's wrong. It seems like Murph's problem isn't that she does the stuff but that she has to go and get it from these shitty people in the neighborhood. And he offers to provide it for her uh, risk-free from the evidence locker because apparently they occasionally pay informants in drugs. Um, Yeah, that's what you do. (laughs) That's what he says. I don't know if that's like on the books or whatever. Uh, It's like, what are we going to do with all these confiscated drugs? How about we give them to people? (laughs) (laughs) Murph gives her a ride home and admits to knowing who killed the kid that was thrown off the roof. She seems to subscribe to Corelli's recommendation that nothing's going to bring the kid back and not to risk his life or job trying to turn in a couple of shit cops. It turns out that she would also consider him a rat if he turned in the cops. He's offended until she points out that he wouldn't even be in this conundrum at all if her brother had thrown them off the roof. Uh, He only cares because it's cops. He's only hesitating to report it because they're police. It bothers me that he doesn't go into like the reasoning because of course he wants to turn these guys in like his reasoning is that it would destroy his life and career and all of this stuff like there are consequences to turning cops in that aren't there for turning in any joe schmo that did it yeah Yeah. and so like i i'm not saying that that's right still not to do it but there's more to it than it's just like well you know you're just sticking with your team yeah But he asks, is that wrong? And she wants out of the car immediately. She says she wants to walk the last three blocks to her apartment. But from inside a nearby building, we see the two men that killed Charlotte. And they're watching her and they know her. So it turns out she's not going to her apartment. She wanted out early because she she needed the drugs. And this is where she gets them. Do you think that it was a little bit of extra false outrage just to get out of the car sooner to get her drugs? Yeah, that's possible. That she wasn't actually that upset because she was like, yeah, no, I would do the same thing in your situation, but I need to get out here. So I got to pretend <laughs> to be pissed off. But from inside the building, they see Charlotte getting out of the car and they know that it's Murphy's car and they're worried that she's going to lead the, the cop right to them. And so they decide that they're cutting her off. Well, they're going to be cutting her off by killing her. Right. Well, they're going to enable her to kill herself, essentially. Yeah. The other guy, not, not the guy who got cut, but the other guy has a plan that they're going to give her this bad coke and that she'll finish herself off somewhere and they don't have to worry about it. They invite her in to do business and we cut directly to her ODing in her own bed. She's sweating profusely and tries to stand, but she only manages to get outside of her building before she collapses. She's knocked over by a gentle breeze. As she's stumbling down the street, a couple people notice her, but no one actually tries to help until she hits the ground. But but she's a nurse. You'd think that she would have like some kind of idea of what to do in this situation i think she was trying to walk directly to the hospital i think she was trying to go get help because what is she going to do she i mean she can't call 911 because like we said they're not going to send an ambulance they're going to send cops and she's 
a drugged out person, she could just get arrested. And yeah, I don't even know if she could talk right now. I think she was on her way out to get help. But um, but I, but I, I I don't know. Like I I do get that, but I would think that if if I was going to use drugs and as a nurse, I would be aware of the risks that are involved with doing these types of drugs. Well, I would have a contingency plan. Yeah, but I, I think the the difference is that she trusted these guys and she thought she knew what she was taking and they gave her something completely different on purpose to kill her and so she couldn't yeah. she couldn't take that into account because in the past they'd have always given her exactly what she ordered well and it's not like these are the days of like narcan and she's just got something ready to go yeah you know have if a she shot. has an issue we see the men who took charlotte's body waiting outside the hospital emergency room door they're here to get drugs from their connection inside the hospital a pair of plainclothes cops show up while the guy with the cut face is in another room. And when they try to arrest the other guy who drugged the nurse, uh, he shouts to his friend, oh, this is a bust. And they immediately have two hostages in this hallway. The dealer has a gun to the doctor's head and the killer has a knife to another doctor's throat. Uh, Murph and Corelli get a call of a 1013 at Jefferson Hospital which I guess is a hostage situation. I didn't look up the well, it, code. Almost every call that they received was a 1013. Oh, was it? A lot of hostage situations. Yeah, I was situations. like, what the, he- what the hell is 1013 supposed to be? Yeah. Officer needs help. Officer needs help. Okay. So that's oh, pretty generic. Go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when they arrive on the scene, Murph is worried that his girlfriend may be involved in this hostage situation since they said there were nurses up there. Uh, The hospital staff are ordered to hide patients in their rooms, and one of the cops on the scene has put together a plan that they could sneak in through an administrator's office and catch the hostage takers by surprise from the opposite door. Murph offers to go with him, and Murph and Corelli synchronize their watches for this plan of attack. Murph and the guy who thought of the plan start rappelling down the side of the building to get into the administrator's office. They kick in the windows of the office they're trying to get to and move into the building. At the agreed-upon time, Murph and the other officer burst into the room with the hostages and shoot both hostage-takers without uh, costing anyone their lives. Nobody else gets hit. It's just the two hostage-takers. But Corelli takes his time busting through the door on the other side, which doesn't seem to matter at all. But it seems like he wasn't ready when the time came up that they were supposed to go in. I think it would have been better if Corelli and Murph had come in at opposite sides and shot opposite hostage-takers. Hmm. But the way it plays, it almost feels like Corelli was trying to get him killed because he didn't want problems for the police force. Murph is quick to clear the room, but he doesn't see his nurse girlfriend anywhere. We cut to her being pronounced dead in another hallway of the hospital. Obviously, the attending doctor and nurse are emotional, as this is a friend and coworker of theirs, as well as a patient. And Murph finds them like this, and he won't take the doctor's word that she's dead. He lifts her body in an effort to force her to walk down the hall. Do you guys remember the last time we saw somebody in shock carrying their dead lover as if they were alive? Uh, t- not Tess. Uh, not nine to five because they weren't lovers. They stole the body there. Um, Richard, any guesses? Um, the body was naked, if that helps. The body was naked? No, I, I want to look at the release Think of the schedule. movie with the most naked bodies in it. Oh, Caligula? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh. His sister lover. Sister lover. <laughs> we see Murphy walking to the precinct in wide shots, and I'm worried that this film is going to be over with absolutely no closure on any of the other storylines. 
Well, you're almost right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I mean, essentially, this storyline has closure is of the will they won't they get together. Right. Um, and and <laughs> we won't. and they we won't. get we get one other bit of closure here uh, as uh, he enters the precinct and walks directly to Connolly's office, and he immediately coughs up Morgan and Finley's names and tosses his badge on Connolly's desk. Uh, Connolly wastes some time trying to convince Murph to stay on the force, but he's done. Connolly claims that he wants to clean up this precinct and do everything by the book, even though he's ordering the arrests of legal protesters and tear-gassing crowds for standing around. He tells Murph, you can quit if you want to, but I'm not built that way. That's nice, Captain. That's nice. You keep trying, I'm quitting. Connolly calls for someone from the district attorney's office and a stenographer to come into his office immediately. And as Murph is leaving later, he points out that the men will know what he's doing in here by the time they've seen a stenographer come inside. When he exits Connolly's office, everybody at the desk gives him dirty looks because now everyone thinks he's a rat here. We cut to Murph driving home when Corelli pops up from the back seat and puts a finger gun to Murph's head. Freeze! <laughs> Jesus. I thought it was a hit. Corelli tells Murph that he knows that he's going to get subpoenaed and he's not willing to perjure himself to protect Morgan and Finley. So now he will confirm what Murphy reported because they're partners. But yeah. before he said he would not do this. And right. now he's admitting he'll do it now that he's taken the plunge. What? Which just sucks because I feel like he might have made a different decision earlier right. about all of this. And, yeah. and that would have changed like the trajectory of like a whole a bunch lot of, of stuff. stuff. Yeah. But uh, Murphy corrects him that they are not partners anymore because he just threw his badge. And right on cue, they see that elusive helmeted criminal or not helmeted criminal, depending on your preference. <laughs> the capped uh, guy. The capped guy <laughs> from earlier. He's taken a bunch of stuff out of an apartment and running across the street and Murph pretends for a second that he's retired for good and he's not going to do anything about it. But then he starts chasing the guy and then uh, they're chasing the guy on foot after he starts running through a courtyard and they chase him through this demolished neighborhood and the camera pans down to show Charlotte's body wrapped in a rug uh, in this just pile of rubble. Rubble. And uh, rubble, rubble. And... uh, Murph and Corelli catch up with the guy, and Murph takes a wild dive to tackle him as we freeze frame and the credits roll. So does that mean he unretired? I think it does. I don't, like, I feel like it's super unclear. Yeah. I'm assuming what happened is he decided, you know what, this is what I do. Like, he can't help himself. I get it, but, like. And he got shot three days later. Yeah, whatever. I don't care. (laughs) Well, what I thought was going to happen when Corelli pops up from back behind the seat there's this van that comes up behind them really fast and is like tailgating them. I was like, and then swerves around them at the last second. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, Oh God, this is it. It's going to, it's going to be like uh, friggin' scanners. They're just going to open up these shotguns at them. (laughs) They're going to go right through a record store, but it didn't happen. Um, Yeah. So we, we, I mean, as much closure as we get for the nurse story that the gun is out there and presumably it was still with the hostage takers when they were shot at the hospital. Right. I thought someone's going to find it and say, we got our cop killers. This yeah. matches the bullets from the case. Close that at least. Like, at least they think it's closed. Right, right. Like, yeah. Like, the, her body doesn't get found. Yeah. We don't find the cop killers. We don't blame them for anything. We just shot those guys in the hospital. Yeah, like, Aiello's fine. Nothing matters. Yeah. We, we, we never <laughs> even really understand what Charlotte's motivation is. Other than that she's on angel dust and she's crazy. Yeah. Which I don't think is enough. But also... I'm a snake. She's also yeah, she's true. She's a snake. A snake. <laughs> That's their nature. You know the story of the snake and the bullfrog. 
I don't either. <laughs> I just made it up. It's supposed to be a scorpion. Um, well, our scorpion director here is... Di- scorpion and a turtle is that how it goes no i i I, 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 i've always heard scorpion and frog but didn't we have this conversation in the macgyver episode where the i think there's multiple episodes where they make reference to that but it's the it's uh, specifically the one where um jack's trying to find gold and pete uh is they're like they're working out on like the you know the one where the killer comes back the macgyver's assassin girlfriend Yes, I know what you're talking about. I um, don't. I don't listen to that show. <laughs> uh, she looked like um, Claudia Wells, kind of. But yeah. Anyway, our director here was Daniel Petrie. Last year, he directed Resurrection for us. Uh, he also directed A Raisin in the Sun, Rocket Gibraltar, and Cocoon 2. Our writer was Haywood Gould, who also wrote The Boys from Brazil and Cocktail, which is a strange mix. I get <laughs> the Brazil and this, but cocktail is is a weird choice there uh our cinematographer was john alcott he's wonderful uh we had him last year for the shining and terror train and he's a kubrick regular he also did 2001 clockwork barry linden famously uh world-class work for mr alcott our editor here was rita roland who also edited resurrection for petrie last year paul newman plays murph He's Cool Hand Luke and Cool Hand Luke. He's HUD in HUD. He's Butch Cassidy in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He's the Hustler in The Hustler. And he's the Verdict in The Verdict. No, that's not true. I, I lied for one. We saw him last as oil worker Hank Anderson in When Time Ran Out, 1980. Ed Asner played Connolly. He's Lou Grant from the Mary Tyler Moore Show. He was Santa in Elf. He's Carl Fredrickson in Up. He's a big fan of solar panels. Yeah. Always trying to sell them to me. <laughs> and uh, I think we those are only him. local commercials too. I, so, yeah, I don't oh, know what it? you're talking about. <laughs> you don't know those commercials? No. Ed Asner does. Uh, it's it's a local to Southern California, but he sells uh, solar panels. Okay. Uh, he's a pitch man. Yeah, we don't have solar panels in the Midwest. No. <laughs> you don't even have the sun. We saw him last in our Patreon review of They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, where I think he, did he die when he drove his car off the road or no? He didn't no, no, die. No, 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 no but he was hurt yeah he had his uh, fingers wrapped up like that's after right that. yeah and then they broke the cast off uh to show that his fingers that weren't his finger murder nails. fingers yeah his fingernails are know. short i don't remember ken wall played corelli we saw him last year as Chaz mcclain in one of the four movies called running scared the one that <laughs> only the three of us have seen <laughs> uh danny aiello was morgan this is our third Aiello title after Defiance and Hide in Plain Sight. He comes back for Choo Choo and the Philly Flash later this year. <laughs> and as we're recording this, he passed away almost exactly a year ago. It's about six days after the anniversary. Rachel Tikotin, Tikotin played Isabella. Uh, she was Melina in Total Recall. She's Sandra in Falling Down. And she's guard Sally Bishop in Con Air. I wanted to bring up uh, with Ed Esner uh, because Ed Esner played Hudson on Gargoyles. Uh, oh, and, right. And Rachel played Elisa uh, uh, Maza's police captain on Gargoyles. Oh, captain, that's funny. Captain oh, Chavez. Isn't, is Ed Asner also the uh, the commissioner character on Freakazoid? Uh, no, he's, yeah. He, oh, yeah. I don't, was he the commissioner? Oh, I just know. Yeah, but he was Cosgrove. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but He's great uh, in that but uh rachel was also in uh man on fire uh she's got a great part in that too oh okay she's just great that's the denzel washington uh, dakota fanning one correct pam greer played charlotte 
Uh, her first appearance was in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. She shows up in 70s exploitation titles The Big Doll House and Women in Cages. She plays the title roles in Coffee, Foxy Brown, Friday Foster, and Tarantino's Jackie Brown. She also shows up as Mrs. Wardrow in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. She's Louise Williams in Mars Attacks. And John Carpenter cast her in Escape from L.A. and Ghosts of Mars. Miguel Pinero played Hernando. He played Roberto in Times Square last year. He's Carlito in Breathless, but he passed away from cirrhosis in 88 at the age of 41. So, young guy. Uh, Clifford David played Daisy. We previously had him as George in Resurrection. We best know him for his portrayal of Beef Oven in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So far, we've had Beef Oven and Lincoln. We won't have Bob Genghis Khan till the Twilight Zone movie. So Crates will show up in The Missionary next year. Frood, the Frood dude, will show up in Beastmaster next year. Napoleon is in Superman 3 somewhere. Billy the Kid will show up in Backroads later this year. But Joan of Arc doesn't appear until Clue in 85. Can you guess who Joan of Arc plays in Clue? The singing telegram? That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Sully Boyer played Dugan. He's Eddie Gibbs in The Jazz Singer last year. That's the guy whose car Molly kept hiding in. He was also Larry the Dog Catcher in Night of the Juggler and the FBI Chief in The Kidnapping of the President. Irving Metzman played Applebaum. He was Sandy's lawyer in Stardust Memories. Maybe that's where you were recognizing him from. War Games. Woody Allen's attorney. Oh, maybe. Oh Well, when we were watching the movie, Jess was like, I recognize this guy from Well, I couldn't I even figure why. out, like, I don't think they said his name in the entire movie, and so I couldn't figure out who he was on IMDb. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what, like, what I was going to say. Like, I didn't, they didn't say his name, so the only thing, the only thing I remembered him from was from War Games. Right, um, because and, he's Richter in War Games. Yeah. And he's also back later this year for Arthur and So Fine. John Aquino played Finley. He'll be back as Mackie in blowout later this year i think that's another police officer character norman matlock played lincoln he's the police commissioner in ghostbusters or ghostbusters 2 no i think it's ghostbusters john ring played donahue his partner and he plays the fire commissioner in ghostbusters so the police and fire commissioners in ghostbusters played partners in this film <laughs> tony de benedetto played moran this is his fourth appearance on the podcast after talia shire's ex-husband in windows the guy who got Jan Michael Vincent kicked off the boat in Defiance, and the chicken pimp who gets burned alive in The Exterminator. He'll be back later this year for Prince of the City and Paternity. Paul Gleason played another detective. He was one of the guys who's not getting any information out of the thousands of people they arrested. Yeah. We saw him last as a detective again in Tom Hanks's debut film, He Knows You're Alone, last year. He's most famous for playing Principal Richard Vernon in The Breakfast Club, and in Not Another Teen Movie. He's also Dwayne T. Robinson in Die Hard and Clarence Beeks in Trading Places. Wait, did you cover um, Kathleen Beller? I did not. Oh, that's why I didn't Maybe go I off Maybe I completely my missed her. Tangent. What's Kathleen Beller? Who's Kathleen so Beller? So Kathleen Beller was the, um, the girlfriend of the partner. What's his face? Oh, okay. Yeah, or the fiance. fiance. The yeah. fiance. Yeah. Um, and she doesn't really have a lot of uh, notable roles, but I was like, oh, she looks really familiar. I couldn't couldn't place her in any of these other movies. But then I looked it up, and she's the wife of a musician, Thomas Dolby. 
And oh. and that and then I went down this rabbit hole of looking stuff up about Thomas Dolby. Cause That's I, the guy who sings, she blinded me with science. Yes, and many other great, great songs. It's just that. No. <laughs> That's the one everyone knows. I'm just saying. Anyways, I was just like, oh, okay, so Thomas Dolby, you know, like, oh, wait, his you know, looking at his Wikipedia because it linked from, from there being spouses. And I'm like, Oh, that's not his original name, which I think is really funny because Dolby, you know, has the, you know, the music hardware, stuff, yeah, music hardware and, you know, algorithms, all those fun things that Dolby puts out. And I was like, Oh wait, he took his name from them. Yeah. (laughs) Because he was super into the, like the, the noise canceling, uh, you know, systems that Dolby put out that like it was his nickname and then he just used it on stage. (laughs) Yeah. And didn't you also say that the guy who runs Dolby, like his son is named Thomas Dolby or Tom Dolby? Yeah. So the guy who, who Dolby, uh, is actually named after, you know, the, the, the company, um, he has a son who is also named Tom Dolby, who go, who is a producer, a Hollywood producer. Oh, right. Um, but he was obviously named Tom Dolby. In, I feel like he was born in like 75. So it was before Thomas, Thomas Dolby, Dolby, Dolby became rich. Yeah. And then Dolby tried to sue Dolby <laughs> for using his name. And that got like thrown out of court, which yeah. I just thought was amazing and hilarious. But he's not allowed to sell like electronic music equipment. But that's funny. he makes all this synth music. So that's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but he uh tom dolby not to be confused with thomas dolby is like the producer of um call me by my name oh right is that the name of that one yeah the only other two credits i had were daryl edwards who plays the black rookie that gets shot in the car at the beginning this was his first feature film credit but he recently played detective hoffman on netflix's daredevil series and the white rookie was donald petrie the son yeah. of director daniel petrie uh, we saw him last in The Hearse, catcalling Trish Vandeveer while she jogged. In 1985, he made his directorial debut with MacGyver episode Trumbo's World mm-hmm. about a swarm of killer ants in the Amazon, but you knew that because we bring I it did. up every chance we get. He went on to direct more recognized stuff. Well, maybe maybe equally recognized as Trumbo's World. Mystic Pizza, Grumpy Old Men, Richie Rich. My Favorite Martian, the feature film adaptation. He directed Miss Congeniality, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, and Welcome to Mooseport. Everybody's favorite. Yeah, that's been coming up a lot lately. (laughs) Welcome to Mooseport, the second best film where a character is electrocuted by a Christmas lighting display and someone is running for mayor. (laughs) (laughs) What? Right? Yep. (laughs) Were you not a part of this conversation? (laughs) Oh, I think you guys were chatting and I was not paying attention. What's the first place, Richard? Uh, that would be Batman Returns. <laughs> I, I can't actually judge. I haven't seen Welcome to Mooseport. I don't know for certain that it's not better than But Batman it actually, they, they both contain exploding Christmas trees and mayoral campaigns. People being electrocuted by Christmas tree lighting ceremonies okay. and mayoral campaigns. Okay. You know, common themes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are all the credits I had. Um, the movie's okay. Uh, well, well, I, I, I had, a, you I got, had you got one more. additional uh, credit. Because I saw his name in the credits, and I was like, no. Uh, what is this? <laughs> because he's credited as suspect number four, uh, but it's Clevon Derricks, uh, better known as the Crying Man from Sliders. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. 
And he was one of the people that got brought in when they were arresting everybody. I yeah, knew his he, picture looked familiar on IMDb, and I could not place him, but it is totally from Sliders. That's <laughs> yeah. funny. I didn't uh, click he, on it. I should have gone further. He's the suspect that Paul Gleason is yelling at at his desk. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was like, that's the crying man right there. <laughs> that's funny. Man, now I want to rewatch that scene. Wasn't he like, he wasn't supposed to go through. I mean, none no. of them were supposed to go through, but the portal like sucked in cue ball and his girlfriend and his professor and then it went out across the street and caught the crying man as it was crossing the street because he was driving by or something man that's a good show Uh, sliders was i want to rewatch all of sliders should we just quit and yeah let's be a sliders podcast (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah uh that's all our credits i think for this stuff i think the movie's okay it's uneven and it doesn't really answer a lot of the questions i have of the plot uh, like what's going to happen to these guys is like, will justice be carried out? Will this guy stay a cop, even though clearly everyone at the station hates him now? I think okay is generous. <laughs> yeah. Very generous. I was not, I don't think this movie was good. I think the worst part of it for me, uh, story-wise is that the Pam Greer's character is unmotivated. Oh yeah. I think that's rough. I feel like, I feel like they had all these different storylines and none of them got the attention they needed, but it was also still too long. Yeah. So like, it's just got all of the problems. The only thing that this movie had going for it is Paul Newman, who is adorable and lovable and amazing and uh, just such a good actor, no matter what you put him in. Yeah. And I do get the impression based on the the cast that they were floating for it and other directors that they tried to get that this was kind of an Oscar Beatty thing that they thought this was like, oh, we're touching on race. We're touching on, you know, injustice. And we have these big names and uh, they thought it was going to do better come award season. And I don't think it did. And I think they because of the deal that Paul Newman got uh, for his paycheck that they kind of buried it because if it made over a certain amount of money, he would be owed 15% of the gross. And so it got to a point where they were like, well, let's make sure that it doesn't make that much money because it would actually cost us more money. And he ended up suing them because he said they didn't advertise it enough. And when they sold it to television, they didn't make the deals that they usually do for their feature films. But it also got dropped in, you know, February, which is not like the biggest month for movies. But um, yeah, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit shoddy. I mean, I I hate slice of life movies, which I thought this was for the most part, like the first half hour, 45 minutes. I thought it was. But then it seemed like they were getting a plot. But then they forgot that they were getting a plot. And then it went back to being a slice of life movie. And I don't know. It just wasn't it wasn't good. It's a thumbs down. But I feel like actually the pacing works pretty well. Like, it's never slow. Um, uh, I disagree. Yeah, I don't. I, I think it had. A, I think it had a lot of pacing problems because it was just. But I. I don't like. Richard, you always like to break things into acts. What are the acts of this movie? Oh no, that's the thing. It's like it's because there's no overarching story because it's it's all these other stories that either have no conclusions or or like the the plot of paul newman's struggling of whether or not to turn these cops in happens like three quarters of the way into the movie yeah it it's only the last half hour that we're really struggling with this moral dilemma 
And yeah, and it reminds me of the movie The Dilemma, where it's just like there's not even really a dilemma. If this character is the character that you've set him up to be, that he's a good person, that he was like physically sickened by seeing this person thrown off the roof, then he's not questioning this decision to go to Connolly with it. Yeah, and and so I, I feel like it's too late to introduce this plot because I've already been invested in the cop killing plot. And now I've got the, the these other plots that are coming in, and now the the girlfriend overdoses, and and the and and are they never gonna f- linked those guys that they killed with that overdose? I mean, like, it, it seems like they tried to fit a whole season of a TV show into a movie. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, because there's like you, an F plot. Yeah, and like this whole thing that he he's divorced with daughters. It's like, wait. Oh, wait, and they're dealing the... drugs out of the hospital. Like, yeah. why is the, why is this all in yeah. here? Yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's too much. They're, they probably could have dropped a couple stories, and it would have been a little bit better rounded, and maybe and, not two hours also. And, and I don't dislike the character of Murphy. I I actually right. like the character of Murphy, and I like that he's got like a rapport and actually cares about the people like you know he books that guy who doesn't book that guy who tried to kill himself he but he takes him to the hospital and he comes back to check on him and yeah like there's there's actually like heart to him but uh there's with all that heart that we're showing when 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 it comes down to it when he sees a guy get murdered he he doesn't do anything about it until for for days in as far as the movie's concerned uh i don't know yeah it, it's just the, the movie didn't do anything for me i i that two hour runtime is ridiculous yeah they could have brought that down a half hour and been like night of the juggler style just keep it moving the whole yeah. time yeah and it would have been it would have made a big difference i also feel like the filmmakers might be surprised how much i hated the corelli character by the end of the movie because <laughs> just like yeah. He, I mean, he's he's a charismatic kid, and you know he's he's a cute guy, but he's not a good person. He's kind of shitty to his fiance slash girlfriend. He's shitty to his partner. He's bad at his job. He's ready to like look the other way when these cops are doing terrible things. And, and he doesn't get to... killed. Yeah, and he didn't even get killed, <laughs> which is the one thing that makes you the most mad. <laughs> yeah, he really should have died somewhere, but he didn't. He should have died when, like, Morgan, like, confronts him about whether or not Murphy's going to talk. And you got to get Murphy in line. And and Corelli was like, hey, I don't tell what Murphy wants to do. He doesn't tell me what to do. And they, and then Morgan kills him. You know, like, like give, give me some more stuff. Because also, Morgan's murder of this guy is just totally unfounded like i yeah he, he's rough he's rough with people but to to just result to i'm just gonna pick up this guy and kill him because i can get away with it yeah we don't see, get any hint of these anger issues before he murders yeah. a guy like that yeah well he, he drops the... the he drops the n-word earlier on the film but i was like okay because it's the 80s and he's a cop and okay yeah. I, I, I am not obviously not giving it a pass but i understand yeah uh that that's this character uh, doesn't like the doesn't like those people. So I was, I was like, what? okay, is that the bad? Is that it's bad? But it's that's not murder. Yeah. What was the phrase that you used for the guys that inspired this? Like it was like a 
uh, suggested by suggested the experiences by, of. That I think sums it up. Yeah. I think it's it is a movie that is just a bunch of suggestions. Yeah, <laughs> suggested by experiences. It's not, it's not a good plot. It's just a suggestion of things that happened. It's just like the, the reason that you have no character building in this movie is because somebody just threw somebody off of a building and we don't know why. And some lady just slashed a guy with a razor blade and we don't know why. So from the cop's perspective, there is no motivation. These right. things just happen. Yeah. Uh-huh. One time we arrested so many suspects that we had to commandeer a bus. Oh, that's going in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's definitely a down for me. I would not I would not suggest anybody waste their time with this one. There's nothing special here. No. Yeah, it's a down. It's a down um, for me as well. If we, if we need it to be official on the record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't clear. Do we know where it's going? Letterboxd, Richard? Uh, I have it at now number six. Okay. Uh, that puts it. Uh, below underground aces but above cabo blanco all right i have it at number five which is the exact reverse it is below cabo blanco but above underground aces i have it at number seven (laughs) which is below cabo blanco but above blood beach all right I think that's everything for Fort Apache the Bronx. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now and a YouTube. Find us on Twitter. We have a link tree in our bio. It'll connect you to all this stuff. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash Vintage Video Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing My Bloody Valentine, which IMDb describes like so. A decades-old folk tale surrounding a deranged murderer killing those who celebrate Valentine's Day turns out to be true to legend when a group defies the killer's order and people start turning up dead. We leave you now with the trailer for My Bloody Valentine. It's a bad time, this time of year. How many times is he going to tell this story? Don't let him tell it. I love fairy tales. This ain't no fairy tale, little girl. If you don't take it seriously, you're a fool. (laughs) The first Valentine's dance in 20 years has to be something special. Flanders, you gotta get a lot of exercise if you're gonna grapple with Gretchen. Oh yeah? Well, I got a Valentine for her that she's never gonna forget. <laughs> right to the heart, huh? In this town on Valentine's Day, everybody loses their heart. Roses are red, violets are blue. One is dead, and so are you. It can't be happening again. It can't be happening again. What's going on over in Valentine Bluffs? It looks like Harry Warden's back in town. It happened once. It happened twice. Cancel the dancer, it'll happen twice. There are many ways to die.
take your pick. My bloody Valentine. <laughs>